Chapter 17 of Sacred History Revealed by Lady Peggy O'Malley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. Sacred History Revealed by Lady Peggy O'Malley by Charles Norris Williamson and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter 17 Not being politicians or war prophets, but only tourists, we didn't realize what a flame would sweep over Europe on the winds of fury from this one far-off fiery spark. Tony read us out the news at breakfast in a hotel at Bruges, Austria's ultimatum to Serbia whereupon we went on drinking our coffee and eating our crisp rolls as if nothing had happened dear me what a pity sighed mrs dalziel absently she was thinking of our sightseeing expedition for which we were already late milly remarked that somebody was always throwing an ultimatum at somebody else's head and asked for jam Tony said intelligently that it was just what he had expected after the murder of the Archduke and the Duchess, and looked at his watch. As for me, it did shoot through my mind that Russia might have something to say if Servia were attacked, and I thought that if I were Millie, I should have a qualm of anxiety about my Captain Count but I didn't wish to worry her with such a remote suggestion. And our war conversation ended there. None of us bothered seriously with the papers for the next day or two. Sightseeing in Belgium seemed to us the last thing on earth which could possibly connect itself with an ultimatum or even a declaration of war on Serbia. We went from Bruges to Ghent, from Ghent to Antwerp, from Antwerp to Brussels, from Brussels to Namura, to Louvain and Spa, and so at last arrived at Liège. The next item on our program was a run into Luxembourg, which was to finish our trip, and in a few days more, Tony was to leave us to catch his ship for home as his holiday was over. He had been behaving so well that I minded being engaged less than I'd expected, and it was nice to be petted by Millie and Mrs. Dalziel and loaded with presents. It was the first time in my life that I had experienced anything of the sort, for I had always been the one who didn't matter at home. Each place we visited seemed more beautiful than the last, and I was trying hard to say to myself, this is happiness, or all you can expect to know. Make the most of it, and be a sensible Peggy. It was late on the night of Wednesday, July 29th, when we arrived at quaint old Liège. And though we knew that Austria had declared war, and that all the great powers were muttering thunderously, 
it didn't seem as if anything devastating would really happen. That was much too bad to be true, and everything seemed so peaceful and comfortable. Hotel keepers smiled and said that the war scare were sure to blow over, as it had blown over time after time in the past. We met other people gaily touring like ourselves. They all appeared to be easy in their minds and free from care. So we followed their pleasant example. And the sun shone on us, and Belgium seemed the prettiest and most pacific of all countries, basking under a cloudless sky. Telegram for you, dear, Mrs. Dalziel said to Millie as she sorted the post handed to her by the man in the hotel bureau at Liège. Then she dealt out envelopes to Tony and me, and we were rather sleepily busied with them when Millie gave a gasp. Oh, Mama, he's got to fight, she squealed. He who? questioned Mrs. Dalziel, dazedly in the midst of deciphering a closely written and crossed page of thin foreign paper. Stefan, Millie choked on the name. Oh, it's awful. His father has consented to his marrying me all right, but of course he'll go and, and be killed now, and I shall never see him again. I'm the unluckiest girl that ever lived. And just when I thought everything was going to be so splendid. I heard her wailing as I finished my letter, which was from Di the first she had written me. It had gone to Brussels and been forwarded from there to Liège. Sydney and I are rushing back to London as fast as the car will take us, she wrote. This war news is terrible. Any minute we may hear that England's mixed up in the business. There's no more fun motoring about the country in this suspense and if there's war, all the house parties we were asked to in Scotland are sure to be given up. We want to be where we can have news every minute, and we'll hurry up the decorators so we can get into our house, even if things are at sixes and sevens there. From what I hear, everybody will be congregating in London to be in the heart of things. It makes me sick to think of all my lovely clothes. If there's war, nobody will be wearing anything. All the nicest men will be away at the front. Isn't it sickening? Luckily, Sydney won't have to fight as America's not involved. But I don't want to go over there and have people at home calling me a coward. To sneak away from under the Zeppelins and things the Germans will be sending over. I want to do what everybody else does, though heaven alone knows yet what that will be. I expect Bally and Kitty will come back from Harrogate, where poor dear Bally is celebrating his honeymoon by taking a strict cure. And I hear Kitty is doing mud baths to reduce her flesh. They wire that there isn't one waiter out of sixty left in their hotel. All were Germans. So you see what that means. 
and kitty's maid had hysterics this morning because war's to be declared on her country and because the hotel chambermaids are all turned into waitresses and she had to make bally's and kitty's beds one realizes that war will be horrible for all classes your life won't be safe on the continent you know and you'd better persuade mrs d to bring you back immediately though you've been so horrid to sidney he'll overlook it in this crisis for my sake when even ulsterites and nationalists are forgiving each other father and kitty will have to stay with us when they arrive as the norfolk street house is given up and you must of course come too you can be our guest till you and tony are married if you don't want your engagement to last too long i hardly knew whether i most wanted to laugh or cry over that letter all i did know was that nothing would induce me to stay with diana and sidney van dyke i would even rather be married if worse came to worst but though tony and i were playing at being engaged the thought of actually marrying him was like jumping over a precipice i wasn't ready for the precipice yet and must avoid it if i could i folded up the letter and kept its news and its suggestions to myself i sympathized with milly and hoped that after all even if russia and austria and servia and germany blew into each other's faces it might be possible for england and france and italy to keep the peace di was always inclined to exaggerate and probably she was glad of any excuse by this time to put an end to a motoring tete-a-tete with sidney i went to bed and tried to believe that i had had a bad dream but next morning i was still dreaming it the papers told us how the stock exchange in london had closed which seemed like hearing that london had suddenly gone under the sea belgrade was being bombarded the germans as well as russians were mobilizing furiously king george had telegraphed to the czar but before his message had time to reach petrograd the kaiser had declared war on russia belgium had begun mobilizing too and only just in time trains were wanted for the soldiers frightened tourists clamored in vain to get away even those who had automobiles could hardly move along the roads and many chauffeurs were called to their colors ours was french and went off at a moment's notice with just time for a polite adieu at it pour toujours tony hated everything mechanical except rifles and revolvers and had never learned to drive a car belgium chauffeurs had something better to do than help travelers out of trouble so there we were it seemed only another phase of the dream from which we could not wake when glittering hordes of german cavalry the kaiser's beloved uhlans were said to be clanking over the frontier to violate the neutrality of belgium and we heard that great britain had declared war on germany 
I would have given anything to be back in England then, not because I was afraid of what might happen in Belgium, but because my blood was hot with pride of my country, and I wanted to be there to see the spirit of the people rise. There was little time to think, however, for Liège was seething with excitement. Fugitives began to pour into the town with children and bundles in queer little carts drawn by dogs. Soldiers bade their families goodbye in the streets and marched or rode off in clouds of dust. Wounded men were brought from the frontier, and an annex of our old-fashioned dormered-windowed hotel was hastily turned into a hospital. Red Cross nurses appeared from somewhere, and several women among the penned-up tourists volunteered to help. Mrs. Dalziel could do nothing, because she had collapsed with fear and was sure that she was in for nervous prostration. Millie had her mother to care for, but I was free, and thanks to my work in Ballyconnell, I knew something about first aid. Ever since I met Eagle, and he had given me the old cadet chevron, which I carried with me everywhere, I had grown more and more keen on learning to do what I could for others. And war talk in Texas had prompted me to buy books on nursing. I mentioned this as a personal recommendation. The real nurses smiled, but they accepted my services as a probationer, strong and willing and glad to do what she was told, even to scrub floors with disinfectant fluid. You'll spoil your hands, said Millie. I laughed. Almost at once, after this began the bombardment of the forts at Liège, and all day long and most of the night we were deafened with the boom of great guns across the river. It was a relief to be allowed to watch through the dark hours beside soldiers whose wounds were not serious enough to need expert care that I could not give. Even if I had been in bed, I should not have slept. I felt as if my brain were part of the battlefield where armies marched and fought. My heartbeats were the drums. We grew used to the firing of cannon. It seemed a part of everyday life. It was hard to remember after the first that each boom meant lives ended in violence. Perhaps if we had remembered, we should have gone mad. Suddenly on the third day, just at dawn, came a new sound, a great whirring like a thousand racing automobiles, and then two loud explosions, one after the other, different from the roar of cannon or the shots from the field guns that night at El Paso. The whole building shook as if it must fall, and wounded men who had slept restlessly through the thunder from the forts waked with a wild start. My charge, a Belgian boy of nineteen whose arms had been amputated, shivered and then relapsed into stoical calm as the house ceased to shake. Zeppelin, he said in a quiet voice, they have dropped bombs. It seemed that two must have fallen and burst close by. The noise had been so ear-shattering. Up from the street below our windows came a clamor of voices, shrill and sharp, 
which cut through the constant whir of the giant motor. Near the head of the bed was an open window, and mechanically, rather than of my own free will, I leaned far out, as some of the professional nurses were leaning from other windows. You might get a bomb on your head, said my soldier, in his tired voice. But I did not draw back. I was surprised to find that I was not afraid. It seemed just then ridiculous, puny, to care about oneself. I was awestruck rather than terrified, realizing with a solemnity I had never known that the next minute might be the last on earth. For all of us, in that dimly lit room of narrow beds, the sky was faintly gray with coming dawn. I looked up, up into the pale dome, seeking with my eyes the great bird of evil that had laid its eggs of death. There it was, immensely high above the black shadowy roofs and steeples of the hill and plain, a sinister shape like all the German sausages in the world rolled into one, and hanging from its cars full of men reduced to the size of beetles by that great height. The thing was almost directly overhead as I looked up, and it seemed that if it dropped a parting bomb as it sailed, our poor little hospital must be struck. Yet I continued to stare, fascinated. Life and death were twin brother and sister, equally terrible and splendid. I wish I could have seen Eagle just once again, I heard myself thinking, as one hears the ticking of a watch under a pillow. But I felt a strange, throbbing eagerness to know quickly the great secret of what comes next after this world with its seeming muddle of injustice and disappointment, its joys and broken aspirations. Why, it was like this with me when we had our accident in the Golden Eagle, I thought. And even as the remembrance flitted ghost-like through my brain, I saw tearing through the sky far above the big bulk of the Zeppelin a monoplane etched in black, against the light of dawn. I could hardly believe that it was really there. It must be an image called up by memory of that long-past moment, some strange illusion of an exalted mind. But the image persisted. Like a hawk, it swept along the sky, coming from a direction opposite to that of the zeppelin, as if to swoop upon it from above. I thought I heard shots. The great dirigible turned and sailed faster. I felt as if I were all eyes and pounding heart. Could the sight be real, this duel in the sky? Perhaps others watched it with me. I do not know. It seemed that I was alone on earth, gazing at the incredible battle. The Zeppelin made off away from the town toward the fortifications, but the monoplane kept above it. Despite the shots which spattered futilely, 
just as the dirigible passed over the bridge which hadn't yet been blown up looking enormous for it hung lower now the monoplane tiny in comparison dived full upon it with an explosion of gas from the huge cigar-shaped balloon the dirigible dropped earthward its bird enemy seeming to fall with it i gave a cry and covered my eyes with both hands i felt that i had been broken crumpled up like a singed moth burnt by the vivid flame of that awful sight but arms caught me from behind as i would have sunk to the floor with the roar of another explosion in my ears each brick of the house quivering on another a kind belgian voice was soothing me poor enfant and hands strong though womanly would have pulled me away from the window to lay me down on some unoccupied bunk if i had not struggled to keep my place no no i stammered i'm not going to faint i must see i must and shaking off the nurse's protecting arms i stared out toward an open space from the town where a vast mass of wreckage blazed turning the gray dawn red end of chapter 17 recording by john brandon